Matthijs van der Hoven is the creative director and co-founder of The Weathermakers, a company which uses holistic engineering to create watershed-wide ecosystem regeneration at the broken continental divide regions to restore hydrological cycles. They influence the vegetation to increase freshwater availability through land atmospheric processes. As a hydraulic engineer and entrepreneur, Thies has worked on international projects in Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia. His main focus is innovation, sustainability, visualization, virtual reality, and 3D gaming. After working on several big construction projects, his interest shifted to working with nature and implementing a proactive, adaptive engineering approach. Thies van der Hoeven, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Hello. <laughs> and so you and the weather makers, it's quite amazing work, but just tell us a little for those who might not fully understand this holistic engineering, you know, what is the idea behind the weather makers and holistic engineering? Just what does that mean? What the story behind the weather makers or, or the whole intention or the drive is, is that five years ago, a little bit by accident, actually, I was working in a dredging company and one of the commercial people from Egypt approached me on a question about a lagoon where the fish was disappearing. And they asked via via, they came with me. I, I normally was a bit the creative person within the dredging company. And I pretty much well knew what to do. So we started with this very small team and set up a whole modeling approach where from flow modeling, so really from the hydraulics, we could determine what would happen with the fish. And that really was, was, was that regreening the Sinai could have a very big impact on the world out of scale in positive way, what it could happen. The capitalist school or trying to change certain bigger things, but we realized that the story was so beautiful to connect it with the right people. We set up a company mainly driven just to, to make it happen. And via John Liu, I went to the China to see the Lusbato. And more and more, we, I started to realize, and, and, and his sentence in his documentary of the of Green Gold or, or Lessons Learned in the Lusbato were in principle damn simple. We got to do this on, on large scale. And what we need to do remains relatively simple, the direction where you want to go to. And that resonated. And when I saw China, I realized that it was all earth movement. And I'm a dredger, so I'm used to move lots of sand, whether it's marine or on land. Yeah, and it, went, it, it became a whole journey. And via John, we met so many people, which I normally call my Jedis <laughs> or in the peace. And from it, we just started to collect knowledge, whether it was from Mian or John Todd or Lee Ray or Charling Tao, many, mainly some older people that were really supporting us. And we just as engineers started to, to, uh, to create a whole engineering process, how you can start imagining and capturing the natural potential of an ecosystem, which what I realized in the beginning that by coming from a bit of the construction side and studied morphology or descent movement in estuaries, there we're really used to calculating certain things with natural uncertainties. And what we figured out that people weren't really doing it with ecology, but if you start doing it and you make the beautiful thing like biodiversity makes a more robust ecosystem. It's the same in your engineering way. So the holistic engineering is different than a normal process because you have to touch many topics first 
before you go into deeper details. And we started to develop with the knowledge we knew from the morphological engineering, how we could use our knowledge to support it with ecology and really start learning on a larger scale how to restore ecosystems. Part of that is also setting out research where objective people are just working on engineering a solution, which is in principally simpler than trying to analyze a problem. But by engineering a solution, you, you can see that what we need to do with the tools we have created in this world, whether it's the dredging industry or, or the energy in industry or whatever it is, we have the capability to really change in a positive way the earth. And the question is, and it's not up to me or anybody, does humanity want this or does e Egypt want it? It's all up to them. It's their discussion, their, their decision, but it's everywhere around. With the weather mics, we also, also do a project in the Netherlands because there it's a little bit my ground. Yeah? I'm from here, it's my place. We can only try to show and provide people a solution why nature has so much in her that many of the problems we currently are facing all over the planet, nature can tackle it. And never for one solo question, for many of the problems, it gives you an answer. Yeah, so I love this idea of, uh, as a whole, it's related like to holistic medicine, or what you're talking about is the potential. You're unlocking these things. I believe sometimes you're working with things that might to the human eye seem dead, but they're like diatoms. You work with that, and I think mm -hmm. they're just amazing, actually. The, just tell us a little bit how you allow nature to heal itself. If we focus on diatoms, we, of course, focus on, on aquatic ecosystems, right? And the thought behind the restoration of this lagoon as being a morphologist, we saw it in the tides or in tidal energy. And what you normally see is that the yin yang also is in nature. And you got the solar energy, and I always call it the gravitational energy. And those together create or have the capabilities to create and maintain environmental conditions for ecosystems to flourish. For sure, in, in Bardewil, because she is one of the most less polluted lagoons in the world, simply because when she felt it's so long ago, it never have seen industries or, or destructive agriculture or whatever it is. And there we realized that based upon just literature and researchers out there, but still the main productivity within Bardewil were diet. The diatoms themselves cannot, like other more complex algae forms, transform themselves, replace themselves in a the water column. So very soon we figured out, just by accident, that diatoms require spiral or helixal flows. So, so the 3D flows of water currents coming in. So when this tide is coming in via the inlet, she can steer up the dead organic materials, recycling with the wetlands and everything. And the, and the phytoplankton or the diatoms can grow. But if the conditions are right, which mainly has to do with the ratio of nitrogen towards silica, they outcompete it all. And I always explain it as a little bit the baby milk for an aquatic ecosystem. And that's what diatoms are. And they are vastly productive. And one of the biggest oxygen producers out there in the ecosystem. But everybody tends to forget them because they're so small. But we bounced into them. And we're now having an eco-oasis, so a big eco-machine here in my city really working based upon diatom growth and we can feed and build very productive food webs 
I was curious about one thing. I had recently interviewed Suzanne Simard, who has done extensive research into plant communication and her mother tree project. And I was wondering if you had discovered or have inclinations of something similar where she's studied the mycorrhizal fungus that allows trees to communicate in the underground, in, in their roots, in the soil. And I was wondering with the diatoms or, as you say, these kind of dead organic matter, really living, but kind of old organic matter, if there might be another kind of communication or as she had described with the mycorrhizal fungus that allows plants and trees to communicate over distances. Well, I, I, I can only agree if I heard who, if that's in the water. Yes, of course, because you got the seven kingdoms in life there, which are going to connect. And it, it's those systems which are vastly better in communicating and taking care of those systems. And if you are building up this structure well from the beginning, yeah, there, there will be, there will definitely be regulators, communicators in those systems living in symbios with each other and really generating these pluses. But sometimes I don't know even all what it is. And sometimes you simply also just have to do tests and, and enjoy. We set up a while ago just four similar cylinders with sediments from by the wheel with salty water on top of it and see if we could reactivate those sediments. And yes, you can. And in principle, there are like DNA stores of life, which definitely not everything is that. So you can imagine that that can start all new kind of funky stuff. And I think what we see also in the eco-oasis, when I started to analyze these natural systems, where we had this eco-machine, right? So five cylinders next in a row, you can see life evolving and building up biological intelligence by more biodiversities and more ways how she can deal with it. You can see that those systems are intellectual systems. They're, they're smarter. And then you can see that, that popping up. And I think that's also a bit what she describes. And I, I cannot predict it. I can only be damn curious to see what, what life is going to show us. There's this microscopic rotifer. The, is that correct? That it came back to life after 24,000 years? You're hearing all of these kinds of stuff. What, what I've heard... For example, from Artemia, which I bought for <laughs> my cousin when, when he was having his birthday, I was reading on the back of it, describing it to the child, that even the seeds of Artemia can, can really be out for, for decades, I thought even thousands of years. And then when the conditions are right again, can pop out and live. The sediments in By the Wheel, which we were able to get over and do some biochemical analysis on it, they all have very large microbial communities, which are asleep. And you just need to slowly wake them up and let us see what they're bringing us. I've seen the images of these cleans the water, as you say, a source of oxygen, absorbs the CO2. They're kind of like miracle workers. And then I'd read and that the dust from the Sahara, which, you know, you're also, you know, working to restore desert, lifts these diatoms and it brings them across to the Amazon where they've been fertilizing. It's a little bit, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. But what you see is that broken water cycles also have a positive effect in that sense because it are the desert winds that are brought up into very high atmospheric layers due to the shape of the mountains, etc., etc., where all of this desert sand comes in and it flies via a higher atmospheric layer with different airflows, which you always know from flying, if you have tailwind or not. That's what's bringing it to the Amazon basin. And when she falls into the ocean there, she is the biggest feast of silica 
towards the diatoms. So the diatoms outcompete any other algae, and they're just just a, a complete flourishing of, of diatoms on which the whales, etc., all of the animals are attracted to. But you also see it in Bahrain, and I think it's on, on what's it called from the BBC that Planet Earth. There's also a part of it where you see that there is still a big uh, the bird colony. I forgot the name, the black ones, the good swimmers, which are there because the desert winds blow in the silica into it. And in that way, diatoms grow, there's lots of fish and the birds are coming to catch it. So you see it in lots of locations. And it's a negative system still now also in by the wheel playing an important role. But there are always different ways to recycle or re-bring in silica. And silica itself can be brought in by the winds out of the desert, which is now. But we can also mimic that cycle from nature with mud flats and marshlands and really recycling nutrients and also uh, minerals. And you can halt regions that are, well, you know, I think it's amazing because these are areas where, I mean, it's biblical. I think like they've been deserts forever. I, I thought like that's their natural state. But what you're saying is that, of course, these, these lands like the Sinai can be restored and that's not their natural state. It was a consequence of, of a global warming of a certain, you just describe what you're doing there and what, how you're restoring those ecosystems? Well, first of all, one, one of my loopings <laughs> was that I actually, damn, when was that Sahara green? When did it become a desert? I didn't know it, but it's not that long ago. It's less than 10,000 years ago. And we know that from, from cave paintings, from fossils, from, from many things. They also now flew over with an infrared camera and you could see the old river systems in the whole Sahara, which is funny because in the Sinai, you could still see them because there the mountains are so close, there's not that much sand, which could have hide those things. So when we started, I was most likely too stupid to think like, okay, wait a minute, there's more oxygen. There's principally more water transport, water vapor transport over the Sinai. So why is she not green? It can only be because we have broken a natural system. So if you start diving into history and you also consider that history that happened in those 10,000 years and realize we have to be a bit careful with the datings of this history. You can see a kind of funny pattern on a larger scale because at the same time, the deserts were created, which we know rather precisely from sediment core drillings in the near shore, where you can see the gray, greenish clay coming from river systems rapidly changed in supplements of sediments towards a ratty, sandy part where you know it's from the night wind of a desert. So from there, we saw patterns, which we could also see in Babylon and Mesopotamia of the fall. And then we started to realize that could it be possible, because now you can see lots of debates in science as well. Is Africa partly naturally became a desert? And is some parts where they men in, induced destroyed ecosystem? Or could it be that destruction of little ecosystems could have much bigger impact on a larger scale. And then if you start looking at the encatchment basins of the Nile Delta, you can see that the Sinai used to hold a continental divide. And a continental divide is nothing else than a mountain range high enough with a functional ecosystem, with an organic white infrastructure to control the hydrological cycle. She can com separate complete weather systems. But if she does that, the water which is now a little bit like a vacuum cleaner sucked by the Sinai into the Red Sea, won't flow there anymore and can only 
push into the Nell Valley. And then we started to realize that if you use, and I learned that also a little bit from the Chinese, there are no computer models that can predict this or can, can do calculations to it because all of our models are validated and calibrated on only the last period of history. So they only know a system in decline and not a regenerative system, which we don't. But what you can see if we in the Western world tend to zoom into stuff and really start to specialize our little selves. But an ecosystem doesn't work like that. An ecosystem is connectivity. It's a different way of looking at it. And if you zoom out, you can start looking at, for example, the history of sailing boats, sailing these areas. They can tell you something about the wind. So there are many other ways, and also in that sense, in a holistic way, whether it are the biblical texts or the Quran or the Old Testament, start reading them and you start to see a potential different way how to further explain what happened in the history. And what I learned from the Chinese, it's the history which tells us where we need to go in the future. It ain't the future telling us. We can guide it by looking back and understand much more what happened in, in Earth history. And I think she holds many of the questions we're now facing. We can find back in, in history, but also just in the shape of the land and then how land was treated. And so is it possible that it's, so you say it's a broken ecosystem in certain deserts, or did we need that extra heat at some stage in history? I, I don't know. I mean, mm. well, well, that's that's of course a very interesting question, and and I like to to openly discuss it without saying that that every anything I say is in that sense fully properly studied in that sense. But of course, it was already in the book The Weathermaker, where Tim Flannery describes that larger scale ecological restoration, which was not always coupled to our industrial revolution, but which we have been doing. Till we exist, we are weather makers, or we always say that our name, because we love the book, actually stands for humanity. And we have done this all, all the time by irrigating, by agriculture, by building cities, by everything. We're changing the weather, we do in, in that sense. And I think that's what we need to start to understand and what we can do. So if you ask me, could it have been that when the Sinai fell, you got this large desertification happening in 100 to 200 years? where the whole North Africa became a desert and Mesopotamia. If you ask me, that could well have pushed away the normal ice time, which would have come then, but didn't. And by pushing that away, it gave us the force as a brutal species to rule this world. And now we have to understand that if we want to stay in this world, we should now regenerate. And in that sense, there were many indigenous people always talking about it. It's also us as a species developing towards a more collective way on becoming more adult as a species, I guess. And I hope that's what we're, we're all to. But, but I'm a positive person and, and I feel that many places in the world start to realize it and, and maybe not the structure of this world or not all the structures of this world. Mr. Teeks, I really like your discussion about this topic, especially like your last comment about how we as a species needs to develop and live in a way that's more like adult in this community of Earth. In some way, I feel like sustainable development, which is a big talking point, is kind of like a way for our species to grow into this adulthood. And the three cornerstones of sustainable development includes environment, which you have very extensively discussed, but also society and economy. So I wonder, in your opinion, 
How are these cornerstones affected by your projects? There was once a guy, I think from Sweden or something, he made a very beautiful graphic about the 17 development goals and where you find the biosphere at the bottom, which is environment, quality of land, on underwater climate goals and, and drinking water. Then you've got society, a proper structure where inequality is changed towards equality and then towards a proper economy. And in principle, if you ask me, what, what I normally don't really understand is that people are shouting that hard that we are with too many people on this planet. First of all, how are we going to convince all those people to change their behavior by saying that, okay, guys, a couple have to leave or something? What I believe is that we're not with too many people. What we're doing with too many people is stupid stuff. So we got to, in that sense, grow up. And I think when I started this project, I got very close as a friend with John Liu. And he took me to China. And, and John Liu is, is my Jedi, but he's a bit of an hippie. From, he's a bit older than me. And when we start to have discussions, I asked him, I said, dude, dude, you ask me as a dredger, right? I come from the destructive industry. Are we allowed to do this? And in the beginning, we many, we lot said, John was very harsh on, on the consumption society we created. And I said, I agree, dude, but, but I'm a little bit a child from it. And I said, next to it, we now got these tools created by the consumption society, which by giving a different purpose are the machines we require to regreen large scale. So what then happened with us, but also with the people around us and we've been doing, we started to realize that this project was not only changing the winds in reality, but was already changing a little bit the winds in our minds and with the people we are working. And I do believe that that is happening on many places in the world. That's first of all. But I do believe that the project, because of her size and of her narrative and of her impact, I hope, and I, I can only do my utmost best, which I do every day, uh, that yes, it, it can, can set a new way of thinking and a new scale of it because the large machines need to get paid. And, and we need to dense, if we need the money, we need to start evaluating ecology because then hey, at a certain moment, you start coming on, on a society. And for me, if you ask me, there's only one thing we should now prioritize in doing is ecological restoration and for the rest sustainable energy and more sustainable industries come but give it a bit more time but really now is they're just focusing on the biosphere because the biosphere is the climate regulator and there i think as a species we can all develop how we can live in a beautiful way after but let us first just do the things because we're damn we're in problem we're in, in troubles with the really really troubles coming up if people think that the wars or anything are the drivers behind the climate refugees to Europe, for example, but you see the same in America and other things, it's climate change for sure in Africa. And she's not going to stop. We didn't saw nothing yet. And yeah, so I hope there we can, we can, what lots of people do, try to set an example on which direction we can also go. And that would trigger people and we can do it on a more larger scale. The idea that Sinai and the larger desert environment was once lush and green not so long ago is really fascinating. It felt like the region had always been a desert, even going way back to the ancient Egyptians. This discussion demonstrated the immense impacts of humans on the natural systems, and how our impacts on the minor system 
can have drastic effect on multiple systems at large. In our schools, we have been taught that human impact on the environment started relatively recently, more specifically in the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution. But what we now see is that humans have always caused significant impact on their surrounding environment. And the effect that we have caused before the Industrial Revolution is not as minuscule comparing to those that comes after it as we once thought. The idea that we are weather makers is a testament to our power and a recognition of our responsibility to safeguard this planet. With great power comes great responsibility can describe our current moral position. The interesting thing is that the idea that we are weather makers, that we can cause an enormous amount of impact on Earth, is hard to process for the human psyche. We're so small, how can we possibly have done this much damage to the environment or caused climate change? It's possibly one of the most common ideas held by climate change deniers. So common, in fact, that it borders on cliche. But the truth is, we can. We always have the power to impact this planet, for better or for worse. We must understand this and the responsibility that comes with it. Something else that caught my attention is the discussion on human industry. Destructive industry is how Mr. Thies van der Hoeven described his origin. I think this is fascinating because the idea of industry and growth has been linked to environmental destruction and social degradation. In other words, unsustainable. There is a sense of shame entangled in these words and ideas. And since they are considered to be inherently unsustainable and destructive, the usual thought has always been to reduce it. But what if it can be different? What if the industry is not destructive, but restorative and beneficial to the environment? In the book Cradle to Cradle by Michael Brongard and William McDowell, they proposed a change in the mentality and the idea of industry. Make industry beneficial to the environment and human society. Let it be restorative, not destructive. I believe what the weather makers are doing is a good representation of this change in mentality. Now, let us go back to the interview. And just to put this in context, you know, for restoring the broken ecosystems in deserts, what kind of reduction in climate warming can we see if we were able to do that in more areas in the world? That for me is a difficult question to answer. But what I can say is that we fully set up a scientific group now working on restoration of water cycles and taking there into in consideration what this potentially could mean. And if you ask me, it can mean a lot. But it's, it's without meaning. We, we need to build evidence, which we are in the whole group, but also in example projects. But everybody knows that vegetation cools off the area, so cools off the close to the lower atmosphere, so it can hold less water. So water comes down as rain. And when there's more water, more evaporation is there. So water works as a kind of energy circle. And we are, we are going to absorb more solar energy, which in an ecosystem can mean reduction of temperature in the lower atmosphere. And in the overall, and that's a whole discussion. What we now know is that the high vapor, the high clouds in the atmosphere are, are really one of the most worst greenhouse gases, water vapor is there when she's so high. And that's what you reduce with the climate change. 
And if you start looking at whether it's sequestration of carbon or all greenhouse gases, which are mainly all of the, the stuff we need for ecological growth, you can start imagining it. Because the system, when in a large scale with polycultures and the whole shizzle in it, so really with all the different steps, we can bring back a diverse first vegetation cover and nature will start taking over and build a robust ecosystem herself. And I think if you look at it, we're building there on the full scientific backing up of it. But, but if we do this on the right scale, we can tackle climate change sooner than we think. That's really fascinating. And so in terms of building, I know it's a case by case, but in terms of building or starting to rebuild a functional ecosystem, and as you say, having nature take over, how long is that that kind of investment of time before you feel where you can sort of stand back? Again, that, that's of course, then size and things can mean a lot. But we know you definitely need a proper 20 years for some vegetations to really start creating their first functions and accumulating organic matter and just building up our whole energy flow within it. And the scale, in my sense, doesn't really matter because we have the equipment in the world to do it. So the question is, and there's lots of cultural processes where the people who live in the area need to go through to really want this change. They need to want it because it's their place. But if you look at those things and see the positive effects, we can really scale this up. And which upscaling, I mean, we could, we're now looking into or describing the whole process, how you can use marine sediments as the old indigenous soils, which used to be on the lands, to really quickly, via the eco oasis, where we run via diatoms and a whole complex food web from aquatics to land, from aquatics to land through a whole process to build fertile soils. And if you could do that and you have the people, we can scale it up. And I think really within 20 to 40 years, we could have a massive impact on earth in a positive way. But then we need to want it and do it. And we need a proper discussion, I guess, on climate change and I guess on sustainability and many of these issues. I was just wondering how you talk about upscaling this project and multiple projects similar to what you are conducting can help us work out our current climate crisis. So I'm just wondering, do you know if there are any other similar projects at work in other parts of the world? I, I know that on many places in the world, people are thinking about ecosystem restoration on a small and a large scale. I'm not fully aware of what every the status there is, but but in many places this is starting up. The problem, though, what you see is, is that still lots of the finance which is out there is not properly going into these projects. But that's all just also an evolution of our whole system that is opening up gates. And I think there, in the nearby future, very soon, you will see lots of them popping up. So I definitely, yeah, I know that there are lots of more projects. On this scale, I cannot, I never heard of it. It could be, but but there definitely are. Yeah. And it's and it's not just climate change, of, of course, it's the big thing. But of course, it's also food security for people in the region, water security. I mean, so many things, the potential of water wars over water in the future or, you know, but if you have a functioning ecosystem, then it avoids that. Absolutely. This is the percentage of biomass determines the percentage of organic matter, determines the infiltration of water, determines the sequestering of greenhouse grasses, and determines stable climate. Yeah, it, it touches 
all of the problems we there have. And all of it, if you look at the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, are covered in that sense, or, or nature gives an answer. And it doesn't mean to say, because that's what you always hear in the Netherlands, oh yeah, but then we have to give up all of our farmlands. No. Create organic infrastructures of which biodiversity and, and, and biological intelligence of landscapes can really build up and become strong, that they can handle changes. And then they can become really supportive. And I think it's extremely creative. It's kind of like you're repopulating the desert. It's kind of bringing back to life what was existing before. What are some things that you've discovered in this process? Lots of things. I discovered myself, I guess. I discovered many of people which I respect so much because they dedicated their lives on the funny thing about nature. It very quickly makes you also a better person because by thinking about nature, you don't think about yourself. You think about the collective system, which is out there. And that's what it gave me for sure. And, and the people I it was a bit stressful once in a while. It was not easy to set up and fight a bit the skepticism around it and stuff. On the other hand, it gave me so much love and, and beautiful people around me. Yeah, it learned me. Yeah, it learned me a lot. And it, it also maybe what it also does, what it learned me myself, is we tend to forget to follow our intuition as people in, in this world. Or I wasn't following my intuition that much anymore. And that's also a beautiful thing about ecological restoration. But it's really following what you feel is right to do also in, in, in the designing process. And that's a beautiful thing. That makes me a more happier and a more uh, at ease person. So I think the majority of it is, is by, by doing it, you also process yourself, I guess. And you have, speaking of processes, speaking about welcoming things into this world that you have just, and your second child. And I'm, I'm very curious about the kind of lessons, the respect for nature, the things that you pass on to your children. I mean, what, were, what was your family like? How was that passed on to you? Well, first of all, my oldest daughter is now two and a half years old. So I was busy with the project before they came. And my son is just two and a half months old. So my son, I said, I'm still feeding and you know, the baby stuff. But with my daughter now, it's, we're discovering, we just moved and um, we just planted some plants and some, some stuff. So both of us are just experiencing nature in that sense. And I guess that's what I can, what's up to her, what she finds inspiring or what she, she wants to do. But I can, I can just show her how much fun I have in working with it. So much, you're in Holland, where you're born in Holland, in the Netherlands, and we so much admire the progressiveness. I mean, I certainly have felt that from my friends there, from my visits there, the way your approach to sustainable cities and just, I mean, just what are some of those things? Because I think that we could certainly learn from adopting them in different countries. I think on the end that every population has a beautiful thing. So let me not be, be too proud of being Dutch, but I'm definitely a child from this land and she's beautiful. And I guess for sure, well, the Netherlands is mainly on the sea level. We always have been fighting a fight against water and floods before really the climate was an issue. Everybody was here. We're trying to manage and fight the water every year. And you can see that already in our structure of the nature or of, sorry, of the government. We have two types. So you got the water board elections and you got the government elections. So what is in our bit in our DNA is that you really need to set up that system separately. So you got your short goal economy and you got your longer vision and your water safety. So that's something which where my child from and which I admire next to that by building such a structure out to protect yourself from the water 
some very interesting probabilistic or the Delta Commission, they call it. So very interesting safety chances of floodings and stuff have been developed here. And it's really the background of this country. Now, having said that, it also always used to be one of the most populated places, which is now, of course, a bit less. But with living with lots of people together on a place, you also need to. The Netherlands, we are very well on, on the bottom of the list on biodiversity and other things. And we are a very productive country where you can ask yourself if we should be so productive in agricultural goods. So there's also lots of changes we need to go through. And definitely what we have been seeing in the last three years is that droughts are getting a serious issue also in the Netherlands. Uh, so we had three very dry summers. And that also forces us here to rethink again. But no, there are definitely some interesting ways on how we built our little country. That's true. It's interesting because I've seen a lot of great design thinking, a lot of great sustainability thinking coming out. of it. And as you said, it's because as a country, you've been dealing with potential climate disasters. And so now in terms of your main projects, you're active in Egypt. You're focusing on things that maybe you, you can't share, but you can tell us some things that you're looking forward to doing and maybe the challenges you may be facing. I hope we can provide enough inspiration to the levels where certain decisions are made in Egypt to really be able to set up a creative collective design process, mainly with the people there. I always say we are building them the tools for them to use and to redesign in an ecological way their landscapes, that we can create that possibility for the people there. And, and after that, I'm inshallah, I would say. It's up to the whole process to see how it will go. But I hope that, that the effort where now many people with me put in the last five years in, into this, it can really benefit the locals on the end, can benefit Egypt, and I hope can benefit the world in, first of all, be an example, and second of all, in the potential positive changes it could have on the water vapor distribution globally. I find your direction coming into solving this problem very inspiring. You are not like their saviors. You are more like putting the means of change in the hands of the locals. And you're just providing the tools for them to help themselves. So I imagine that means that you need to establish some form of relationship with the local communities. So I just want to ask, in doing this project, do you have any challenges in connecting with local communities? No, I have not a lot of communication with the local peoples out there. I've met a couple, and of course, I know more Egyptians. And we always feel that, that what we're doing, lots of times, can also be misinterpreted because not everybody hears us our full story because we normally don't really search publicity for it. The Guardian was for a special reason, but we know this is what many of the people want and have been experiencing from 1925 they started to dress here it's not up to me to decide what they want but it was also not for me when this whole story was in our hands to say we're not going to do nothing because lots of the people say if you don't know if they want it they cannot do it so we checked it a couple of times and what, what our intention is is to provide the opportunity for those people to do it and when they start doing it, we will give them the tools, how we created that possibility. And with them, start doing it. And I'm, I'm pretty sure what I see and what I've heard, even also in the Lus Plateau, when that not was always in the beginning, what everybody wanted. And when I was with John Liu, walking around the valley, which you see a couple of times in the documentary, we bounced into people that he already knew for decades. 
And what for me was life-changing in that Lus Plateau is it, on the end, did not treat all the people well. It made them proud again on where they were from. So without having a more, which again makes sense that all these things come together, but the people were very proud on their culture, on where they were from, on their lands, on everything. And what I've realized and what, what John Leo also showed me there that ecological restoration, if you give it time and for the people to shape their lands, I'm convinced that on the end, everybody will want it and they will start convincing themselves. So I guess that's the way for us. It was we realized that if we from the beginning could not straight away work together with the local peoples, the only thing we could do is accumulate as much as knowledge out there and try to transform it in one kind of tool and vision for them to to take over and play with because they will fish they will see they can decide what what which values are where but we're just going to give them all of that ecological value stacking in an engineering way that they can start designing their lands and sometimes when i'm dreaming i'm, I'm when i was younger and, and uh, we're playing computer games i was always playing civilization and there i always dreamed of and i still do is how cool would it be that that same tool, how you do the project, is fed by real data and by a parametrical guidance where you also have a game where people all over the world can support, maybe play the game and come up with a funky idea and put it back to the people there. So, so there are many, many ways I think technologies out there can come together and really support these type of projects. It's really admirable what you are doing and restoring ecosystems. And I guess just in closing, as you reflect on your discoveries about weather and the environment, and you think about the world we're leaving for the next generation, and just about the future generally and our, our current systems, what would you like to see? And what lessons have you have been important to you? That's a good question. Be humble in the role you're trying to do with other words never think it's you but it's a larger thing we're all working on together it's all it's in that sense of our species and i hope the problems how people worldwide are exposed and sometimes also the difficulties on really helping it eh? because we're all stuck in a kind of system where you have to also accept the positive but also the negative thing and i guess what i hope to see is that if people are willing to set aside their greedy own way of being and transform it towards a collaborative way which can share much more, and it's a much more peaceful world. I hope that ecological restoration is growing to a certain level soon, where we finally get a common goal all over the globe and doing it. And I'm humbled if I can do my little best to do it with all the people we have been doing it. Our own, the only thing we're trying to do is create a momentum for a more lovable world, to really just let's start helping each other, forget about the past, that's also one of my main goals. I cannot judge people on what they did. I can only judge people on what they're going to do. And that we step over, or there are many artists now popping into my mind, but that we step over mistakes and stuff. What we all have done is start collaboratively working together to heal this planet. Because as you see, but I see it as well with you guys, if you talk about it, if you think about it, man, we can have a bright future ahead of us. I don't know, maybe seeing some news about new animals or that kind of stuff instead of bombings or whatever it is. They're just the funny little things that can make, it, can make it possible. And all of us can do it. Take a brick out of your garden, put a flower in it. Or whatever. There are so many ways you can do it. And what changed me, I guess, also in this five years is, is furthering my own team, is that by not only having to work for money, 
which sometimes is just addictive how it is. By working for a common greater good, you can really make friendships which are special and meaningful. And I guess it gives you a kind of new meaning in life. And I hope that that's the future we're ahead of as humanity, where I know that if you look at the current status where it's going to, it's not always bad. But if we want a fundamental change in the whole world, we know from history, first turns very bad before we do it. And if we do it, let us not do a revolution. John Lee, you said this to me once. The next revolution has to be evolution. And let us do that as a species and enter a much more prospective life and work as one earth. My earth is your earth, John Leo always says to me. And that's it. I hope, I hope that's where we're going to. Well, thank you so much for sharing your tools and harnessing your imagination and momentum to help heal this planet. We all live on one planet we call home, I do believe. So thank you, Thies van der Hoven and the Weathermakers for your holistic engineering projects that restore ecosystems, help us regenerate agriculture, understand how deeply connected these systems are, and create a better tomorrow. Thank you for adding your voice Excellent. to the Planet podcast. Thank you. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Yin Song Lee, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Yin Song Lee. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Three Brown, and the theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.